KMTT, Ki Mitzion Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Aleph Tammuz, Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, Erev Shabbat Parshat Chukat, and the Erev Shabbat program is Leilu Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. The parasha begins, Zot Chukat HaTorah. We deal with Para Aduma, the famous... Mystery mitzvah, how does this paraduma remove tumat met? How is it that while it is purifying someone who has tumat met, it is making impure the various kohanim involved in the process? Mysterious mitzvah. And different midrashim, which describe Shlomo HaMelech, HaChacham Yikol Adam, the wisest man in history, trying to find out the reason behind this mitzvah and not being able to. And thus, this Rashi was quoting the Midrash, Zot Chukat Torah, trying to understand what the word Chukat, Chok, means. Lefisha Satan v'umot ha'olam onim et Yisrael lomar Ma mitzvah zot umatam yeshba The Satan and the nations of the world are goading Israel and saying, what is, this, what is this mitzvah that you're doing and why, why, what's the reason behind it? Therefore it is written with regard to it, It is a decree from me. You have no permission to think about it, to question it. It's a decree. Later on in the Parsha, in Parshat Chukat, it says, Zot HaTorah Adam Kiamut Be'ohel. This is the Torah, a man who dies in a tent. <clears throat> in other words, what is this is the Torah on a simple meaning means this, these are the laws. This is what is to be done when a man dies in a tent. And the Torah and the, and the continuation of Parshat Paraduma goes in great detail into the laws of one who becomes impure, Tameh, from coming in contact or in the area of a dead body. Torah, and we see being used many times within Sefer Vaikra, Zot Torah Tatsarat. In other words, this, these are the laws of. Chazal take this Zot HaTorah and make a drasha and say, Zot HaTorah dam kiamut be'ohel, ein ha-Torah mitkayemet, ela al mishe meimit atzmo al divrei Torah. The Torah <coughs> will only come to one who is willing to kill himself in the ohel of Torah, one who is willing to sacrifice himself in the Beit Midrash, working very hard to learn Torah. In other words, <coughs> Zot HaTorah, which literally was meaning, these are the laws of Tumat Met, Chazal took out of its context and said, Zot Torah, this is, this is the Torah, the Torah in its entirety, that the Torah in its entirety is only acquired by one who is willing to kill himself in the Ohel of Torah. He's willing to sacrifice himself for learning Torah. If we take that idea of taking this idea of Torah, which has a specific meaning within the context of every parsha that it's mentioned in, and broadening it. So when we say Zot Chukat HaTorah, I believe we can come to a similar idea. 
We just read the Rashi, which says that this law, Zot Chukat HaTorah, referring to this law of Parah Aduma, is a decree. A decree means a law without any reason behind it, or at least reason that we can understand, is differentiated from a mishpat, which is a logical human law. It's differentiated from other laws which a human being would not create by himself, but can understand the, 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 the rationale behind it. Shabbat, Chagim, Tfilin, Mezuzah. We understand why we have these mitzvot in our lives. And here we say, Chok, Chukat Torah, a decree. <coughs> Don't try to understand it. In l'cha reshut And of course, Rashi bringing Chazal say this idea with regard to Paraduma. <coughs> However, <coughs> I believe that in the same way that Chazal took that pasuk, Zot HaTorah Adam Kemut Be'ol, out of context, and understood it within the context of the entire Torah, I believe we can do the same about this pasuk as well. Zot chukat ha-Torah. It is true that Rashi and Chazal understood this pasuk correctly within the context of Paraduma. However, the idea of Gzirahi milafanai ein lecha reshut leharher achareha it is a decree from me, and you have no permission to question it, to think about it. Is an idea which I believe has to follow us throughout our religious experience as Jews. As Jews, Certainly as Jews from the Beit Midrash here in Yeshivat Haaretzion, we constantly strive to understand things. We hold up the first mitzvah in the Rambam in Hilchot Yesodea Torah that we have a commandment to know God. We do not believe in a faith which is based on a lack of knowledge. We believe in becoming educated and understanding the Torah, the mitzvot, knowing God, as the Ramam says, just recently in the classroom. And this is a belief which I've heard not once and not twice. A student formulated that belief, emunah, is believing in something that you have no proof for. That is the meaning of emunah. Believing means a leap of faith. There is no concrete evidence or reason to believe in our faith and that's what makes it emunah emunah is believing in something a leap of faith a believing in something that you can't prove this is something that I do not identify with I disagree with I do not think the Torah was given to an entire nation and not secretly through an individual in order that it should be some secret leap of faith that only a few people know about and the rest of us are kept out in the dark. And without going into reasons why we do or do not accept God, accept the Torah, 
it is clear to me from my experience in learning Torah that this is not the attitude of the Torah. We do not have a leap of faith. We believe in the Torah. We believe in God because we know the Torah is true, because we know God exists. And this is not the forum in which I will discuss why I know the Torah is true and why I know God exists. However, after this very self-confident approach, not everything has answers, and certainly I do not have answers to everything. Perhaps my lack of answers caused me to lack a certain amount of identification with certain mitzvot, certain ideas. And the question is, does my lack of identification lead to a lack of participation? Today, it is very, and for several years already, and this is something that Rav Amital has discussed in the past, is very in vogue, is very in fashion to be mitchaber, to be connected. When talking about attracting the youth into the world of Torah, we talk about the need to connect them, to make them identify, to bring them in. And as an educational philosophy, there is there is a logic to this, and, and that if that's what has to be done, that is what has to be done. However, when we ultimately face a group of Jews who want to be committed to the Torah, we have to come and say to them, "Zot chukat haTorah." You have an obligation to learn. You have an obligation to ask questions. To question things. To look for answers. But, at the end of the day... Our connection to Torah is not one of chibur, of a connection, of an identification. It is one of obligation. Zot chukat haTorah, gzerahi milafanai, ein lecharashut leharhechara. This is the decree of the Torah. You have no right to question it. That is to say, when all is said and done. We may or may not identify, we may or may not connect, but our first and foremost standing in front of God is one of obligation. We are obligated to keep His Torah and mitzvot, to learn the Torah, to act in the way in which the Torah demands of us to act. We may identify and connect with different aspects of the Torah, and we may not. 
And as Jews who are Shomrei Torah mitzvot, we have to understand that our participation in the world of Torah mitzvot should not be affected by our identification, our connection, our hitchabrut. It is only one of obligation at the end of the day. We are avadim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, just like an Eved can identify with his master, he can like his master, he cannot identify with his master, and he cannot like his master. he will still be obliged to listen and do what his master commands of him. That is our obligation to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I do not deny the fact that someone who is more identified and more connected will have, as in the example of the slave, will have more motivation. A slave who likes and identifies with his master will probably be more motivated and looking to do a better job. But that's not where he draws his line of participation. Certainly mitzvot that I identify with more, that mean more to me, I can testify for myself that I go into them with more zeal, with more love perhaps. But that is not our most basic stand in front of God. The way we stand in front of God is one of obligation and identification and connection. If we so merit, so be it. And hopefully it will be to our advantage as well. But it has to be clear that our identification and connection do not impact our participation. Our participation within the world of Torah mitzvot is a participation based on obligation. Zot chukat Torah. On some level, all of the Torah is a decree which we are not allowed to question. We question, we look for answers, and we're supposed to do that. But when we don't find answers then we stand back modestly and say, Zot Chukat Torah. And with that, we will turn to Rav Tavori. This week, on Chet Tammuz, is the yard site of Rav Yaakov Yosef, who was the first person recognized as the Chief Rabbi of New York. My interest in the life of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef was sparked because of two reasons. One, in general, the history of New York and developing Yiddishkeit in a city when the influx of immigrants from Europe was very strong, and there was a general feeling that on one hand America was the golden Medina, the Golden State. On the other hand, it was known as the Trefa Medina. It was known as a place where everything was not in accordance with Jewish religion. Legend has it that many of the immigrants actually came and threw their tefillin overboard 
as they approached the Statue of Liberty. They somehow felt, they were told, that Yiddishkeit is no longer applicable in America, and the situation seemed very grave. Another reason that I was interested in the life of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, the first chief rabbi of New York, is because eventually the school that was named for him, Rabbi Jacob Joseph School, better known for many, many years as RJJ, was the yeshiva in which I learned for four years when I was in high school in New York. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef was born in Kovne and went to the traditional yeshivas of that time. He learned in Valozhin, and he was a Talmud of the Nitziv. He later on continued and learned, became a disciple of Rabbi Yisrael Salante. On one hand, he was involved in the, the in Lundus environment of Valozhin. On the other hand, he was also involved in the Musa movement founded by Rabbi Yisrael Salante. We know of his positions in various places in Europe. He was known as a Dayan, as a big Tamid Chacham, a person who could deal with the rabbinic courts, but he was especially known for his homiletical ability. Eventually he wound up in Vilna, where he was a Dayan, a Rav, and again known as a Darshan. Now, the interesting part of American history at that time was there were many, many shuls. There was a great, a, number, a great number of them were located in Manhattan and specifically in the Lower East Side. But there was no central authority of the rabbinate in New York, unlike the situation, for example, in England. In England, they had a concept of a chief rabbi. The shechita, the, the kashrus, was supervised by a concept of the chief rabbinate. Dayanim were appointed by the chief rabbinate. And this was something that a number of people in America and New York envied and felt it would be important to arrange for a chief rabbinate in Israel. One of the main organizers of this idea was a shul called the Besamedrish Hagadol of the Lower East Side. It was a very famous shul which existed for many years. I remember it from the time I was in high school. The Besamedrish Hagadol. And they really wanted to establish a rabbinate. They actually looked for a suitable candidate and they offered the job to the famous Tamid Chacham who was a scholar of Tanakh, the Malbim. While the negotiations were going on, the Malbim was nifter, and they had to look for someone else. In 1887, when the rabbi of the Rabbi Ash, was nifter, they went to ask different people in Europe for their advice. They went to Gdolim and asked for their advice about whom they would choose, who they could choose to be the Rav Harashi, the Rav HaKolel, it was called, of New York. And they hoped that one of these people whom they approached would himself be willing to take the position. A book uh, which was written about building Torah in America 
and the, many of the personalities in America was published by Art Scroll under the name Torah Personality. That book tells the story of these people that were asked, including Gedolim such as Rebel Yochayim Meisels of Lodz, Rav Azriel of the Seimer, of course the great German scholar, Rav Chaim Berlin, the son of the Netziv, who became the chief rabbi of Moscow, Rav Yeshua Leib Diskin, the great Rav of Brisk, who eventually became the Rav of Yerushalayim, and another one was Rav Yaakov Yosef. Now, except for his position in New York, Rav Yaakov Yosef did not have the fame, or at least in my world, I wasn't aware of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef as I, as I was well aware of the other names that I mentioned. But apparently, if these are the eight people that were asked, or some of the eight people that were asked, apparently the level of people was considered very, very high. And these people were felt to be appropriate not only to give the advice, but to become the chief rabbi of New York. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef accepted the position, albeit with a heavy heart. As I said before, America was known to be a tray for Medina, and he knew that the position would be quite difficult. On the other hand, he was promised a good Parnassa, and in Europe the situation was such that Parnassa was very difficult. So because of this fact of life, he agreed to come to New York. The idea was to set up Bateidin, to set up a court system which would be under the auspices of the chief rabbinate. But specifically, he dealt and wanted to improve the situation of Kashrus in America. Instead of having various individuals in charge of a one butcher shop or another butcher shop, they wanted to arrange a central hechsher where Rabbi Yosef would be in charge of the shochetim and control the shechita of the area. In fact, there were people who wanted to spread it to other areas as well. But in order to improve the standards, one of the facts of life is that this costs money and you have to impose a tax or some sort of higher costs on people. He wanted to have what we call today, or once was called a plumba, which was a specific sign on every piece of meat, on every chicken, that it was found kosher according to the standards that he had set. They had to impose taxes on each and individual piece of food that they bought. He really wanted to do this not just for cashews of animals, but they tried to do it for matzahs for Pesach. This created a tremendous machlokas. The machlokas was fought by people who weren't interested in spending the money, by people who weren't interested in having a separate hashgacha, a, sep- a special hashgacha, one hashgacha for everybody. And eventually, it became not just a machlokas over the shechita, but other people fought for the title of being chief rabbi of New York, and some people even looked for the title of chief rabbi of the United States and Canada. Rabbi uh, Yaakov Yosef was involved in this machlokas, 
when people try to usurp his title, he was the first Rav HaKolel appointed in New York. But other people, as I said, tried to usurp the Kolel. And apparently Rabbi Yaakov Yosef did not fight them tooth and nail. He somehow felt that they also need Parnassah, tried to help them a little bit. This took a great toll on his personal health. In 1895, when he was only 51 years old, he became ill and was debilitated for a number of years. He did not have a parnasa. Eventually came a time when not only did he lose his position of Rav HaKolil, but even the Hashgachas, which somehow supported him, were taken away from him when the butchers stopped paying him. And he really had no parnasa at all. He was nifter in 1902. That means for seven years or so, he lingered in a state of illness. But he was nifter, really penniless. Besides trying to establish the central authority of Rabbanut in New York, he was also involved in the world of Chinuch and tried to improve the Chinuch of, of especially his community. The yeshiva at that time that was founded was called Eitz Chaim in the Lower East Side. My father-in-law, Rabbi Yeshua David Teichman, actually learned in that Pesmedrish called Eitz Chaim which eventually became Yeshiva University, eventually moved up to Washington Heights and became known as Yeshiva Zerbitzel and became known as Yeshiva University. Rev. Yaakov Yosef's legacy in the world of Torah seems to be rather meager. There is a record of a sefer that he wrote of Drushos that he printed when he was about 40 years old. I assume that this sefer maybe could be found in the library someplace, but it's not a sefer that seems to be well known. But what he is most famous for, besides the effort in to establish a united Rabbonus, besides the effort to establish standards of kashus, which would be acceptable by all in New York, he founded a school that eventually became name be, became known as that yeshiva, which I said I went to in high school, Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef. So the name Yaakov Yosef, the chief rabbi of, of New York in the late 19th century, was, was known for many years as the yeshiva. Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef was one of the first yeshivas in New York and had a very good reputation for Limude Kodesh. The Ramim, the Rabbanim, that I remember coming from Europe mostly, coming from the Mir in Shanghai and other yeshivas to be in RJJ, were very famous Tamini Chachamim who had many, many students. I'd like to mention some of them that I knew personally, the Rosh Hashiva of Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef at that time was Rav Yehuda Leib HaKohen Kagan, a distant relative of the Chafetz Chaim, who was known as a great Tamid Chacham. His Svarim that were published were called Halichos Yehuda, where he has a, a, a halachic and an Ashkafic discourse in every parish of the Torah. 
he was the Rosh Hashiva in the years that I was there. Other people included Rav Yitzchak Isaac Tendler, about whom I spoke in a different uh, broadcast, because he was my Rebbe once and had a lot of influence in spreading the love of Torah among all his students. Rav Zaydel Epstein, who later on went on Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, became the Mashgiach of the Yeshiva, known as Torah Or, was Nifter not so long ago, was one of the leading Rabbanim of this Yeshiva. Unfortunately, as the neighborhood changed, and the Lower East Side lost much of its Jewish flavor, lost much of its population, the Yeshiva Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, which was known on Henry Street of Manhattan, has moved to Staten Island. The name of the yeshiva still continues. The reputation of that yeshiva still continues. In this way, the memory of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef is still remembered, although the history that I've tried to portray today is not as well known as the name of the yeshiva which was named for him. His life represents the beginning or a type of beginning of a struggle in New York to build up Yiddishkeit. And it's really amazing to see what has happened from the beginning of the 20th century until today. At that time, it was unheard of that yeshivas could be spread all over, not only New York, but over the United States, day schools, yeshivas, all this was due to the efforts of those pioneers, to those people who were willing to come to America and try to build Yiddishkeit. In some cases, they were more successful, in others, they were not as successful. The case of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, in one respect, is a failed endeavor. But nevertheless, the impressions that were left, the beginnings that were planted at that time, apparently have borne fruit many years later, and the Yiddishkeit that is enjoyed in America owes a great deal to those people who came in those years to actually build Yiddishkeit in America. It's a shame that the only reputation really that we have is that of the yeshiva, because we also know that he was a Tamid Chacham and a great Magid. His name should be remembered forever today through the yeshiva, which is in his name. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. And with that, we'll be wrapping up another Arab Shabbat program. Thank you for listening. We just want to reiterate, we balance a life of asking questions and looking for answers and learning to find new meaning and deeper meaning in our religious existence. And that's a constant in our lives. But the most basic constant has to be one of obligation, of saying, I may or may not identify, I may or may not connect, or may or may not understand, but Zot Chukata Torah, Zirahi Milafanai, the Torah is a decree for us, 
and we keep it without asking questions, even if we don't get answers to our questions. May we merit to keep the Torah, to be obligated to the Torah, and may we merit understanding, connecting, identifying with as much as the Torah that we can as well. Shabbat Shalom.